0: One of our children asked what time the service would be. I said it would be at 10.30. And knowing that the uh, World Cup Women's Final is on at 11, my beloved child said, Well, Dad, you'll need to set it up to record the game or we're not coming. (laughs) And they're all under 10. So I set it up to record the game, which starts in 12 minutes, And I hope that you have set it up to record too, because this story about Naaman is rich and it's worth our attention. Naaman was used to clear water in both the literal and the metaphorical sense. In the literal sense, he was used to the clear water of the mountains of Syria, the Abana and the Farpar, which he called better than all the muddy streams of Israel. In the metaphorical sense, Naaman was used to the clear waters of things being clear. He was used to knowing how the world worked and how to get things done. Naaman was an Aramaean, and we're told a military hero. In our time, he would be a general or a field marshal. The king thought well of him, and he was a wealthy man. Naaman had a successful life. All the things that we would want to put in place for a successful life, Naaman had. He had wealth, he had connections, he had reputation, and he had power. Naaman was a mover and a shaker. If he had been a Presbyterian, Naaman would have been on the radar screen of the development office of Montreal Conference Center. He was a big deal. In fact, the Hebrew way of describing Naaman is just that. Verse 1 says he was a great man, but they could just as easily have said Naaman was a big deal. He was used to the clear water of life going according to plan. but Below the surface of Naaman's life, it was more complicated, as all of our lives are. No matter how carefully we try to curate our lives, they are complicated. And even if the appearance on the outside is that we have a designer life, a picture-perfect marriage, kids that are all above average, at least one beautiful home, enough money to do what we want. Even if from the outside, our life looks like an Instagram picture where the rough edges are blurred and cropped out. All of our lives are complicated below the surface relational conflicts, regrets, financial trouble, tragedy, injustice, bereavement. There is always, always more to us. The paradoxical truth is that it is often this more that God uses to get our attention, to draw us closer to the waters of God's grace. For Naaman, it was his skin disease. The text calls it leprosy, but Naaman did not have Hansen's disease. The Bible uses that term leprosy to cover a whole range of things, and most likely Naaman had something like a persistent skin rash or maybe even skin cancer. Whatever it was, the text says that he suffered from it and he wanted to be healed. When you're suffering and vulnerable... When the clear water of your life has become muddy, you can be very afraid and desperate. A study was published recently about the ways that water around some of our tropical reefs are becoming muddier because of human activity that is pushing silt into the water and changing the climate. To study the effects, scientists put fish in a clear uh, aquarium full of water and measured their behavior. And then they put fish in a muddy aquarium full of water and measured their behavior. And what they found is that the fish who were in the clear water were calm and comfortable and relaxed and they didn't move very much. But the fish in the muddy water were anxious and darting quickly to and fro and never settled down. They said it was because the fish in the muddy water couldn't see. And so their defenses were up. Because they were anxious, they felt vulnerable, and so they never stopped moving. When our lives are muddy, when we are swimming in muddy water and feel vulnerable, the thing that we most want to do is get to where the water is clear. We'll tune out the news or pour an extra drink or go shopping, or take a day of me time, or go on vacation like many of you are doing this week, or to a retreat here at Montreat. And, and that's what those times are for. They're times to clear our head and remove the distractions of the world and our lives from, from our focus so that we can see. When our family moved to uh, these mountains, when I was called to first Prez Asheville four years ago, none of us had ever been to Montreat. Can you imagine that? I knew you couldn't. We're what you would call first generationers. And many of you have been here for two, three, four, five, six, seven generations. This was our 4th July 4th at Montreat. Our children cheer from the back of the car when we pass the gate and we're on the way to play in the creek or go to the playground. This year, the best part of July 4th for us was that Robert Lake Park was reopened. It it, it is better than ever and, and beautiful. And after the parade was over, we hustled down to the park to get to the swings and the slides and to play in the creek. The water was clear. Now sometimes it's muddy depending on how much rain we've had. But on Thursday it was clear and you could see the water bubbling over the little pebbles. I took off my shoes and I got in the water with my youngest daughter. I chased her in and out and around the rocks, tossing pebbles in the waters of Flat Creek. A guy walked by and said, you know, this is small-town America at its best. I couldn't have agreed with him more. The water in Montreat literally and figuratively is clear. And that's why we love this place. But even these mountains and these places we have loved for generations cannot insulate us from the muddy water of life and of the world. So after we left the park on Thursday, I shared on social media a picture of myself and my youngest daughter that I had where we were staring in wonder as a fire truck went by in the parade. And both of us were just looking with this childlike expression of wonder. I put the caption to the picture... A parade inspires wonder and gratitude. Happy Independence Day. Before long, my aunt in Charleston replied to my post with this Does it bring children torn from their parents' arms to peace? I had expected something like How cute? (laughs) So I tried to answer carefully. Only if we use our freedom for good, I said. I expected it to go no further, but she wrote back, what would that good be? Now, in my family, discussions like this on Facebook don't end well. So, so I decided to just leave it there. But that exchange stuck with me all day. I couldn't let it go. It had stirred up muddy water on my clear, cool water day. Muddy water is where things are stirred up from the bottom that we would wish to just settle back down. Muddy water is a place of uncertainty and anxiety and vulnerability. As Naaman found, muddy water is also the place where we meet the living God. Naaman heard there was a prophet in Israel who could help him ease his suffering. So he did what any of us would do. Say that you have a diagnosis and you hear that there's a doctor in Texas who has a new treatment. You just marshal all your resources to get there. And, and that's what Naaman did. He put his power and his connections and his wealth and his reputation all to work. And he got a letter from the king. And he got a wagon full of cash. And he got a service uh, protection detail. And he got a, a handful of servants. And they headed off into enemy country in Israel. You need to understand that enemy, uh, Syria and Israel were enemies so he was going into enemy territory the first place he went is to the king now Naaman's looking for a prophet so why would he go to the king Naaman went to the king because he thinks the prophets on the king's payroll because that's how it worked in every other society around Israel religion was an extension of the culture and the state prophets worked for the king The religious infrastructure was there to support the national party line. And what's so striking about the God of the Bible and the God of Israel is that it is exactly the opposite. The prophet answers to God, not to the king. And God does not always side with the state. In fact, sometimes God sides over against the state because God is always on the side of the weak and the vulnerable. But Naaman didn't know this. And so he headed off to the king looking for the prophet. The king of Israel answered wisely. He said, am I God that I have the power to give this man life and death? I mean, what was he going to do? Even if Naaman was a big deal, even if he showed up with, a, with barrels full of cash, even if he came with a veiled threat from the king, what was he going to do? He wasn't God. The God of Israel doesn't take cash or credit. And thankfully, Elisha intervenes with a quiet message. Send him to me, Elisha said. So Naaman loads up all the symbols of his successful life, his letter, his servants, his protection, his money, and he heads off to this little shack to find a prophet. When he gets there, Elisha doesn't even get out of his chair. He sends the secretary out to tell Elisha to tell Naaman to go wash in the river seven times and he'll be fine. This, my friends, is where Naaman reached the end of his rope. He has a disease he can't cure. He has to go to an enemy begging for help. He has to beg for a king that he thinks is weak. He has to find a two-bit prophet in the middle of nowhere. And now the man won't even come to the door. Who does he think he is? Naaman is so relatable to us right here in this moment. This is what makes this story just jump off the page and into our lives. Listen to how Naaman explodes with his unmet expectations. He says, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. You ever gone off in a tirade like that? Exploded with unmet expectations? A job that is not what you thought it was going to be? A marriage that is not what you hoped it would be? A school system or a health care system that is not what you need it to be? A government that is not what you know it should be? Our unmet expectations can make us boil inside. We rage. And here Naaman believes he has finally found someone who can help and the man won't even come to the door. Naaman was done. Standing there, empty-handed, powerless, vulnerable, stripped naked, He was done. And that is exactly the moment when he was ready to meet the living God. You have to see how that works in this story. He had to get all the way to there until he was ready to meet the living God. In his book, Free of Charge, Miroslav Volf writes that most of us uh, think this following statement sounds despondent or resigned. Listen to this. These are the last words that Martin Luther said when he was dying after a very full and influential life. Just before he died, he said this. We are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. This is true. Miroslav Volf says that to most of us that sounds resigned or despondent because we don't want to be beggars, we want to be achievers. For us, begging is humiliating whether we're begging from a neighbor or begging from God. We only beg when we have reached the very end of our rope. But Luther believed differently. He believed that begging was the basic posture of faith. To stand with empty hands that are held open For God to fill, Luther said, is not humiliating. It is the height of human dignity to be a beggar before God. Naaman had to empty his hands in order to stand in a posture of faith before God. As long as we have something in our hand that we think will save us, we hold God at a distance. Whatever it is, the life we've built for ourselves, our expectations of what the future will be, our charity work in the community, our involvement in the church, our network of friends, as long as we hold something in our hands that we believe will save us, we keep God at a distance because our hands are not empty to receive what God will so freely give. We are the creatures in whom God desires to dwell. If we would just open our hands and hearts. When Naaman was finally empty handed at his most vulnerable, one of his servants, a nameless, powerless messenger who is a a vessel of grace, one of his servants said, Father, if he had asked you to do something hard, you would have done it. This is easy, just go wash. Now the number seven is symbolic in the Bible. Naaman had to dip seven times. And that number seven symbolizes fulfillment. It symbolizes enough. So what is this saying here? It says that Naaman had to do that uncomfortable thing of getting in that muddy water enough times until the grace of God filled his hands. And when he came out of that water, he didn't sing the praises of Elisha He didn't say, wow, what a minister. Wow, what a preacher. He sang the praises of the living God. He said, now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. He had finally met the only one who could stir up what needed to be stirred up and heal what needed to be healed. Now, as I close, and I'm probably running long, so let me wrap this up. As I close, I want to try to give you an illustration of how I think this works in our lives. There's lots of different places we could point to to see how this this need to be empty-handed, to let go of what we have in order to receive the grace of God works. But one of the places that I think is most profound for all of us that we need to wrestle with is on the issue of race. Because our race is one of the things that we hold in our hands. It's so subtle. We hold it in our hands and count on on it to save us in ways that we don't even recognize. And it keeps us at a distance from God. An old friend recently emailed me telling me about her experience in a book study at her church. Usually they read something like Frederick Biegner, or Barbara Brown Taylor that kind of feeds everybody and doesn't upset anybody. But uh, the leader of the study wanted to do something a little more edgy. And so she asked them to read a book about race. And my friend was candid with me and she said, I did not want to do it. But I was part of this book group and so I said I would and I read it and I went to the meeting. And she told me that in truth, she was offended by the book and what it implied about her. Now, you have to really understand, my friend was a good person, is a good person. She has a very happy life that she and her husband have built. They have a successful business. They have children that are all launched. They have grandchildren close by. She gives probably 90% of her time away in serving other people. And it made her angry what this book said about her. But the book was stirring something up in her and she knew it. It was muddying the water. And so she sought out another group in the community and this group was made up of African American women, Hispanic women and white women and they all gathered to share their stories with one another. Some of the stories the people in that group told were very different from my friends, her background and her experiences, the viewpoints they had on the world and their values. It was uncomfortable to her that they were challenging her worldview. And she said after the first meeting, she walked out and said, I am not going back. But she's a Presbyterian, which means she's very committed and loyal. And so she went back to all of the other meetings. There might have been seven. I don't know how many there were. But she went back to all the other meetings. And she finished by telling me what this experience meant to her. And here's what she said. All my life, I've been going to church and going to Bible study, leading committees. I've listened to hundreds of sermons, some of them good. I've been a good person. I went to this group because I thought it was the right thing to do. But in that group, I realized that it didn't matter that I was doing the right thing, or that I was good, or that we were successful or that I was more educated than anybody else in the group. I finally realized, she said, to the depths of my soul, that God loved each one of the people in that room completely, even me. And it was not because of anything that I had done, or they had done, or not done. Never, she said, have I felt so vulnerable and so loved at the same time. The height of human dignity is to stand in muddy water like a beggar before the grace of God. Our world is muddy. Our lives are muddy and we are vulnerable. God offers us a grace that will remake our world and remake our lives. The grace that if we will open our hands to receive it, the grace that all of us are beggars embraced by the love of an eternal God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.